0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, February 4th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Good to see you guys. It's Good to be back with you, um, teaching from God's word. Why don't we do this? Grab your Bible and I'm gonna give you a few minutes to make your way to the Old Testament book of Ezra. I'm gonna give you a few minutes because I'm gonna encourage you to use your table of contents. It's a good chance you've probably not come across Ezra, probably not come across Ezra on a Sunday morning at least. So it might be stuck together, the pages might be. So look in your table of contents and make your way to Ezra. And as you get to Ezra, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put your worship guide right there at Ezra chapter one, and then flip over to Revelation chapter seven. Probably a combination that has also not been done on Sunday morning before, or at least in a long time. Ezra by way of Revelation chapter 7. That's my text and my task this morning. Um, and I do it this way because as I thought about spending a few weeks in the book of Ezra um, and began to study it over the last few weeks, uh, one of the things that was kind of becoming clear to me um, in God's kindness is that if any of you are like me in this way, and I assume that almost all of you are, um, it's very easy for you to lose sight of why you're doing what you're doing and and the end to which you're going in the everydayness of life. Let me give you an example. My family, we can all live through the winter for the prospect of getting in the car, in the van together and driving 11 hours to Florida to visit grandmother to get away from all that we are experiencing in Richmond. But four and a half hours into that lovely ride down Interstate 95 in the van together, Or the third time someone says, are we there yet? Or why are we doing this? I'm agreeing with them. I don't know why we're doing this. There's Spartanburg. Let's go to Spartanburg. There's got to be something fun in Spartanburg. I don't know. But God in his his kindness has given them a mom and, and me a wife that in those moments very graciously reminds us of what it is we're doing and why we're doing it, reminding us of what we're going to experience when we get there in the next five and a half hours of the time that we're gonna have together, the memories that we're gonna make, and all of a sudden the discouragement and the impatience and the frustration begins to settle down again. And then before we know it, right in front of us, when we get off the interstate and make that drive, right in front of us, about 10 and a half hours in, the sky opens up and there's the ocean. There's the sand. We roll down the windows, we can feel the air. And all of a sudden, why we just went through what we went through makes sense. This capacity in us to lose sight of where we're going and why we're doing what we're doing is no different when it comes to our relationship with God. It's very easy for you and I, and moments of everydayness of life and the frustrations and the mundane to to lose sight of where God is taking us and why we're doing what we're doing and when we begin to lose sight of where he's taking us and then why we're doing what we're doing discouragement begins to set in and patience begins to set in and the allurements of all kinds of things around us all of a sudden seem more tangible more real more possible This is what was going on in the lives of God's people when we find Ezra and the book of Ezra coming on the scene, and I want to get you there, though, via Revelation 7, because I want us to be quickly reminded together of where God is taking us, because there are some promises that God has made, and there were some promises that God had made to his people in the Old Testament, and they found themselves in situations where they found themselves discouraged, and It's easy for you and I to find ourselves in the same place. So I want to remind us of where God is taking us. And then I want us to get into Ezra and begin to listen to what God wants us to hear and how he wants us to encourage one another that we don't grow disillusioned and frustrated along the way. So Revelation chapter 7, let's start there. I promise it will make sense if I do my job with Ezra chapter 1. Revelation chapter 7, just listen to these two verses, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And I want us to take a few minutes to just consider what's being said right here. Listen to the very first phrase that John gives us right here. After this, I looked. And the key word here is behold. Behold. I see something. What I see is already purchased. Behold, the reality of what I see is as real as God himself. What I see Behold, this is the future that grace is creating. This is the already purchased future that God has committed him, his whole self to. Look, I see it. It's as real as God himself. You see, every step you take along the way in the ordinary and the mundane reality of faithfulness in a fallen world is one step closer to the promise that God has. And when we can keep the reality in front of our minds, the capacity to take that step and not grow so quickly discouraged begins to grow. But look at what he sees I see a great multitude that no one could number. It's as though he got a vision like we get a vision when we get to Florida of the sea that stretches out beyond anything our mind can even imagine and our eyes can even see. And I don't know who said it first. I'm going to give it to Spurgeon, but I know a ton of pastors have tried to make it their own. As I considered what John is putting before our eyes here, I was reminded of something, and I'm pretty sure it's Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, God is more willing to fill up heaven than we are. The question before us, when we look at what God is doing and what God has committed him to, the question before us is how generous do we believe that God is with his grace? God is far more generous with his salvation than we are, far more generous with his grace than we realize. And I was confronted in my own heart with the question of why should I suppose that God would intend for any single person that he has put in my life to not be part of that picture? When he has given me to them to bear witness to his grace and his mercy, when I lose sight of where God is taking us and his faithfulness to himself and to his word and grow discouraged and grow distracted and get shiny object syndrome, all of a sudden I shrink the size of God's salvation down to what I can conceptualize. And there become people in my life or people in my mind that aren't meant to be in that picture. It was Spurgeon who said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertion and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. That's what happens when I lose sight. When I lose sight of where we're going, where God is taking us, where this thing is is headed, and I become discouraged, and I become impatient, and I become disillusioned. People go unprayed for, unimplored. Exertion gets spent in all kinds of side directions. God's salvation gets shrunken down to the size of my own capacity. Now well, this, this is the place that God is taking us to. This is the future that's as certain as the reality of God himself. It was a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. You cannot give me an example of someone who does not qualify for those parameters. This is the expansiveness of God's salvation. There is not a person in a place or a tribe or a tongue or a nation or a language that does not fit those parameters. And guess what? The more I've thought about it and the more I've considered Revelation chapter 7 and the more I've listened to the news and all the things that are going on in our world and all the things that are going on in our churches, do you know what I've been amazed by? There isn't a person from any tribe, tongue, nation, or language that will gather around that throne in Revelation chapter 7 and feel embarrassed to be there or feel like they're a product of some affirmative action on God's part, or they're a token of some particular people that happen to be there. No, this is the expansiveness of his grace. And they're all, more than we can even begin to imagine, standing around the throne before the lamb, not the lion, that's a whole other sermon, the lamb. The meekness of the one whose sacrifice has made it possible for us to be gathered around this throne. The picture is like the gravitational force of heaven and eternity emanates from Jesus and it's all just drawn right there to him. Focus is on nothing else. There's nothing else worthy of the attention. It comes right to him. It's not on ourselves or the person next to us. It's on him. This This is a picture of what Jesus is building. Against all odds and divisive evil, this is a picture of what God has committed himself to and of what grace is making possible. So as we keep that in front of our eyes, we can be reminded that we'll make it through what we see today. What we see, what we experience, the fractures, the fissures, the divisiveness, the arguments, the conversations, it's going to pass. He's committed to something. It's as real, as his very person, and he's taking us there. But it's in the journey today, tomorrow, the next day, the ordinary faithfulness that we can get so discouraged in. This was the reality for God's people when we find the book of Ezra coming on the scene. Flip back over there. Let me try to connect them now. God had made some very big promises to his people in the Old Testament. So, as big as this picture of promise that God has given us in Revelation chapter 7, this picture that at times when we get discouraged and frustrated it seems so far off, so unlike what we can imagine and what we even experience right now. How are we ever going to get there? And is it even possible to get there? God had given promises to his people in the Old Testament. Way back in Genesis, he came to a guy who was a pagan named Abram. And he told Abram, you're going to leave your house, you're going to leave your home, and you're going to go to a land or to a place that I'm going to tell you about, that I'm going to give you. And there we're going to make a covenant. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And the next five, six books of the entire Old Testament chronicle the story of just how hard it really is in the everyday realities of life for God's people to actually take him at his word to actually believe he is who he says he is, his promises are true, and he's faithful to himself and to his word and to his people. Six books just going, wow, they just can't get it. Just like you and I. They find themselves in the book of Judges in the land that God had promised, in the place that he had set them free from the slavery in Egypt and taken them to, just like he had told Abram, and they divide the land into the 12 sections for the 12 tribes, and there they are. And guess what? The whole story of the book of Judges, if you were with us when we went through it, was everyone decided now to do what seemed right in their own eyes. Taking him at his word was just too difficult. And at the end of the book of Judges, they decide they want a king like everybody else around them. And so the story continues on after Judges that God lets them have the very thing they want. They get kings. They pick their first king because he was the tallest and most handsome. That didn't work out very well. That was Saul. Then you get David. Then you get Solomon. But then from Solomon, from his son Rehoboam, things begin to go even further awry. And after a short period of time from there, not only do God's people continue to rebel against God, they even fight each other. And the people of God split into two kingdoms. Ten tribes gather together in the north, that's Israel. Two tribes gather together in the south, that's Judah. Now they're separate. And the story continues. And what happens, you may remember, I'm trying to put this all together for you. I hope you make sense of it in a second. In 722, the kingdom of Assyria comes and they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. They take over and take God's people Israel into captivity. Now during that time in the south there was a king in judah named hezekiah he prayed and asked god to protect them from assyria and god did god stayed his hand for a little while but while the assyrians were taking israel captive and god's people were now in the north captive in assyria god sent a prophet his name was isaiah you may be familiar with isaiah there's a book in the bible that bears his name Isaiah prophesied to God's people, calling them back to faithfulness to God, warning them of their sin and their breaking of the covenant. But in a very peculiar spot in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 45, I won't read it all to you. I'm just helping you make sense of what we're going to see. In Isaiah chapter 45, there's an entire chapter devoted to this man named Cyrus. And there was no Cyrus in the story at this point. There's an entire chapter devoted to a man named Cyrus, and Isaiah is prophesying about this man. And in this chapter, I want you to hear what it says real quick. It says in Isaiah 45, 11, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth. I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him, talking about Cyrus, I have stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all of his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. It's a really strange chapter in Isaiah because Isaiah is up here in the north. And what we're going to find is that this prophecy that God gives to his people through Isaiah is dealing with his people in the south. But at this point, the south's fine. Judah's just rolling on their own way. God held the Assyrians away, but not for long. If you were with us before the holidays and we looked for a few weeks at the book of Daniel, you might remember that Judah ended up having its own trouble. At the end of about the 600s, Babylon was now the big dog on the global block. And in the late 500s, around 587, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, comes into the south, into Judah, wipes out Jerusalem, destroys Jerusalem and the temple and begins in successive waves to take the Israelites, those that inhabited Jerusalem into Babylon as captives. He leaves Jerusalem in ruins and he leaves the poor and the destitute there. You might remember that from Daniel. During that time, God had sent a prophet to his people in the south. His name was Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a realist and the Israelites didn't like Jeremiah. His story with his people doesn't go well. They put him in a jar and they send him away. It doesn't end well for him, but he was a realist. So when God's people find themselves in Babylon, we talked about it a little bit in Daniel, some were trying to say, well, this is just a momentary thing. It's all gonna be okay in a couple of years. No big deal, hang out over here, ignore the Babylonians. It's all gonna be all right. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah comes and this is what the Lord says to Judah, the Israelites that are in Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie. They're prophesying to you in my name, but I didn't send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Now why does all that matter? It matters because now we're in about the 500s and the land that God had promised, the place that God had promised, the way that God had given his people to worship him, to know him, to commune with him, to understand their need for atonement, to demonstrate God's continued mercy towards him in the temple, it's destroyed. The promised land is in tatters. God's people are in captivity because of their own sin. There was a promise that God had made that seemed so far-fetched, so far away, so improbable at that point, not unlike the picture that God gives us in Revelation chapter seven. Are they ever going to get there? Are they ever going to be able to get back? Well, we learned in Daniel that every man has his day. And in around 540, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is killed, is defeated. A power struggle emerges on the scene, and another empire becomes to be the reigning superpower. It was the Persian Empire. And it was led by a 20-year-old king that had just led his armies in defeat of the Mede Empire. His name was Cyrus. It's 539, and God's people are stuck in captivity now because of their sin. And the book of Ezra picks up there. What do we have in the book of Ezra that will help us today as it encouraged God's people then in the everydayness and ordinariness of life to keep taking the faithful and courageous steps forward with confidence and with hope when what God has promised and what God has said seems so far-fetched. And if we're honest, it seems so far-fetched because we know our own sinful hearts. This is what we get in the beginning of the book of Ezra. So now, Ezra chapter one. What would God have his people know then? And what would God have us know now? The first and most primary thing that God would have his people know then and now and always, and we're gonna see it over and over throughout the book, is that God is faithful to his word. Sounds simple, but it's so hard for us to believe. God is faithful to his word. Look at Ezra chapter one. In the first year of, what's that name? Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth He's charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So God's people are in captivity because of their sin. The promise, the place, all that God had told them about was in tatters back in Jerusalem. But that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled by the mouth of Jeremiah, God had already promised that at an appointed time he would visit them, as we read in Jeremiah 29, and he would take them back to the place that he had given them and promised them. Not to mention, That 200 years before this moment, God, through Isaiah, had prophesied in the north that a man named Cyrus was going to come and God was going to have him rebuild his city and rebuild his place for his people and set his people free who weren't even in captivity. That he may be faithful to his word. Ezra is a book that is going to over and over and over keep in front of our eyes the fact that God is faithful. He continues to keep his word even to an unfaithful people. Remember, the captivity that the Israelites are in is because of their sin. The stated consequences to breaking the covenant that they had made with God would be that they would be given over into captivity. Over and over and over again, reminded of their covenant promise and of God's covenant faithfulness, they continued to allow their hearts to be given over to the gods of the day, their affections be stirred by the promises of the things around them, no longer able to keep in front of their eyes the faithfulness of God, the the worthiness of God for their adoration and worship and satisfaction. And so for that sin, God gave them into captivity just as they knew they would happen. It's because of their own sin, their own faithlessness. But despite their faithlessness, God again and again and again proves to his people his eternal faithfulness. I mean, listen, when you are going through the difficulty, not just extraordinary difficulty of life that different circumstances may bring, like illness or, or losing a job, but just the difficulties of the ordinary, I mean, the 10,000th diaper you've changed, the 10,000th report you filled out for work and sent in with no promise of ever getting promoted or anything ever happening, the ordinary mundaneness that begins to dull our hearts and our minds. It's difficult to believe that in those moments, God is continuing to act faithfully towards you for his glory and for your joy. When life does come crashing down, It's hard to really think and believe that the promises that God has made really mean anything. Revelation chapter seven, as an example, seems so far-fetched, so improbable, so distant from what we experience and what we see. How are we ever going to get there? Is God really taking us that direction? One writer actually said this is the exact kind of situation that Satan will exploit by whispering in your ear that God has forgotten. He'll tempt you to look around at your circumstances rather than to him. For the truth is that at such a time when everything else seems to have failed, listen to this, the only thing we have left to rely on is the sheer integrity of God and his he remains faithful. It's the sheer integrity of God to himself and to his word that is to anchor and steady our hearts as we take the courageous steps today and tomorrow in the midst of the ordinariness and the everydayness towards a certain promise and a certain future that God is making true, but becomes so hard for us at times to see and actually believe. It's the sheer integrity of God to himself and to his word that's meant to steady us in that moment. In fact, Paul had to take the church back to that same place, even in his day, 2 Timothy 2. When we're faithless, Paul says if, but the reality is when. When we're faithless, God remains faithful. Faithful to what? Himself, to his word, which means then his people. He remains faithful. Why? He can't deny himself. Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord unto me, As thou hast been, remember the next part? Some of you didn't grow up with that song. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. He is faithful. But there's something else in these first few verses that goes along with it that God wants his people to know and it has to do with his faithfulness because if we're not careful, we'll put his faithfulness over here into a bucket and think it's separate from the way that we live right here. The second thing that God would want his people to know then and even now, that his faithfulness, is not a passive faithfulness. It's an active faithfulness. His faithfulness to himself and to his word and therefore to his people is an active faithfulness. Faithfulness that is at work for his glory in your joy. Look back at verse one. You may have caught it in the second half of verse one, or maybe it went right past you, but it says, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom. Now I want you to look at verse five. Verse five says, then rose up the heads of the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had what? Stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. He's faithful, not passively faithful, actively faithful today for his glory and your joy. Do you know what that word stirred means? It's a stretch in the English language to try to translate a Hebrew word. That Hebrew word literally means to be awakened. That's what it means. The old King James will use awaken here and in other places in the Old Testament where that word comes. What it means is that Cyrus, as well as God's people, their hearts were asleep. Their hearts were slumbering in relation to the glory of the Lord and the reality of who God is. They were asleep to those things. God had to wake them up. His faithfulness to himself and his faithfulness to his word, and therefore his faithfulness to his people, was active. And God did for them what they could not and can never do for themselves. He woke their heart up. Remember, the situation his people are in, it's not because of the the result of some, some political superpower maneuvering of one kingdom over another kingdom, it was because of their sin. I mean, you could probably say in fairness that they chose their exile because they knew the consequences of their sin. So here comes this edict all of a sudden now that they're in captivity still and a new king is there, they get word. There is now a way of deliverance. Deliverance has come from the punishment that you brought upon yourself. The word of God from Jeremiah now through Cyrus has come to his people. There is a way of deliverance. But God had to stir their hearts up to hear it. God had to awaken their hearts to hear His word of deliverance to them and for them to respond to it and get up and go. It's no different for us today. God's people in captivity could no more stir their own heart, awaken their own heart to the glory of who God is for them such that they would hear this edict and begin the journey with their family a thousand miles back to Jerusalem, which is in tatters and had been destroyed. There was nothing left there. No one had done anything while they were gone. No one could stir themselves up into adoration and joy for the Lord in such a way that they would take that journey. They couldn't do it for themselves any more than a fish could decide to get up out of the water and walk. God, in faithfulness to his word, in faithfulness to his character, in faithfulness to his people, did for them what they could never do for themselves. He woke their heart up. That they might hear his word, particularly hear his word of deliverance. And they might respond to it rightly. You and I, we can no more stir up and wake up our slumbering hearts to the Lord any more than the Israelites could. I mean, just read it like a human. The very fact that God had to stir up their heart The very fact that God had to awaken their heart speaks to the implicit reality that our hearts go to sleep. When we lose sight of where God is taking us and his faithfulness to his promise and his faithfulness to himself and his faithfulness to his people and we find ourselves in the everyday mundaneness that doesn't ever seem to end and the discouragement of life in a broken world, forgetting about that, everything else around us seems more real. Seems more tangible, seems more possible, seems like it might be more fulfilling and our hearts go to sleep and we need the awakening, stirring grace of God actively at work in us to lift our heads and our hearts back up that we again might see who he is, that our hearts again might adore him rightly, that our, our appetites and our desires might rightly be ordered towards that which not only brings him the most glory, but us the most joy. There are some in here this morning that need the awakening grace of God that takes a heart that has been asleep and dead to the realities of God's glory and grace, and you need the awakening grace of God to bring new life to your heart. You don't need the tingling of something happening in your emotions, you need the glory of the Lord awakening your heart to the reality of your need for deliverance. And awakening your heart to the sufficiency of what he's provided for you and his son. The rest of us, just like Israel here, We need the ongoing, stirring, awakening grace of God because our hearts go to sleep and we lose sight of who he is. We lose sight of who we are. We lose sight of where he's taking us and his faithfulness to us in the process. So very practically, maybe a great prayer for you, for your family, for your friends. A great prayer for us together in this church this year would be for God to stir our hearts. That is such a biblical prayer. Plead with God to awaken our hearts collectively. Plead with God to awaken your heart individually to who he is for you and his faithfulness towards you, that your heart might rightly be satisfied in him, that your delight in him may increase from day to day to day, that the blinders of his glory might be able to keep you from being so easily distracted and frustrated in the everyday steps we take towards where he's taking us. What a prayer. What God what would God might do in the life of this church if if that was something that we prayed for one another each day? I mean, what if a Spurgeon was saying? We we believed that God's salvation was as expansive as the picture portrays it, his his salvation and grace is bigger than how we even conceive of it, and what if we began to pray for the people that God has put in our lives, that we're meant to bear witness of his grace towards, and we prayed more consistently and fervently that God would awaken their hearts? What might God be pleased to do through prayers like that? He's faithful, first and foremost, He needs his people to remember his faithfulness. But his faithfulness isn't passive. It's an active faithfulness today for his glory and your joy. It's stirring your heart. It's awakening your heart to who he is, what he's doing, and where he's taking us. But there's a a third thing that's tucked in here in chapter one, and we'll, we'll end with this one. It gets lost in the last few verses because if you read ahead because you knew we were going to Ezra, you may wonder what's left in verses six through 11 because it looks like the church administrator wrote the end of Ezra chapter one. People say that Ezra had a hell hand in helping to write the first part and it was probably a church administrator who wrote it because it's full of attendance lists and inventory lists. And the end of chapter one sounds a bit like an inventory list that you can just slide by, but there's something else here that goes with the faithfulness of God, the active faithfulness of God towards his people for his glory and their joy. And I want you to see it. So look at verse six. All of those who were with them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Misradath the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them: thirty basins of gold, a thousand basins of silver, twenty-nine censers, thirty bowls of gold, four hundred and ten bowls of silver, and a thousand other vessels all the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All of these did Shesh Bazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. So God has kept his word. He's delivered his people. He's stirred their hearts so they might hear his word and respond, and then hear what we get a glimpse of in these last few verses that seem like throwaway verses to us in these days, what we see here is a reminder that amidst all of that, in God's active faithfulness, he continues to provide all that his people need on the journey that he is taking them towards the place and the promise that he's made to them. God doesn't send his people here back to Jerusalem empty-handed In fact, we don't have time to really go into it, but you can go back into Exodus and read the story of God delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt, and there's a little line that you'll find on the way out where it said that they plundered the wealth of the Egyptians. God allowed for the Egyptians to provide out of their resources what his people needed on their way out of town towards the land that God gave them. You see the same thing in verse 6. The people of Babylonia now under Cyrus' rule were giving God's people whatever they needed freely on their way out back to Jerusalem. So even in their sin, even in their unfaithfulness, God in his faithfulness to his word and to himself and to his people has now protected them, preserved them and now will provide for them all along the way that he takes them. He had already told them, he had already told their ancestors who he was, that he is indeed Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And now in the faithfulness to his word and his promise, he shows them again that he is who he says he is. Why? Ultimately, we'll find in the book of Ezra that they may be able to get back to Jerusalem and enjoy God for who he is and glorify him for who he is as they worship him the way that he is intended. See, verses seven through 11, that church inventory, you may remember if you were with us in Daniel, the Nebuchadnezzar, as it says even here in, in, in Ezra, he took these vessels out of the temple, These were items that the Lord had told his people to have that would establish aspects of the worship that God had commanded them. They would use these things in their worship of God in the temple, in the sacrifices, in the washings, in all the different rituals that God gave. Nebuchadnezzar took them out of the temple, took them back to Babylon, and put them in the treasury of his gods, locked them away. But all along, God preserved those vessels of worship because he was going to be faithful to his word. And so as God delivers his people now according to his word in faithfulness to them and what he has promised, God takes the vessels of worship that he has preserved and redeems them back to his people that they might go back and rightly worship him. You see, over in Babylon, during captivity, there was no presence of God in the temple. There was no altar to offer sacrifices. There was no reminder of their need for atonement. But the first thing they do, you'll see in chapter three, when they get back to Jerusalem, is to build an altar to worship. God had protected and preserved not only his people according to his promise, but the vessels of worship that they might rightly enjoy him and glorify him. And I was reminded as I was studying this that God is committed to always restoring his vessels of worship. That includes you and I. You see, you and I were born worshipers. If there is a chief identity that we are born with from the moment we take our first breath, it's that of a worshiper. We are hardwired by God according to his wisdom for our hearts to worship. That's how he made us. But what happens is sin distorts that wiring. It distorts that nature. And all of a sudden, the way that God created us to worship and glorify him for who he is and and to find satisfaction and dependence upon him gets twisted and turned. And Paul will say we end up worshiping the creation rather than the creator. We look more inviting to ourselves than God. The things around us seem more tangible and satisfying than him. And our worship gets distorted. But just as God had promised practically here to be faithful to his word and to his people, protecting them along the way and preserving the vessels of worship that they might rightly enjoy him and know him. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, has remained faithful to his people still and provided for us the ultimate need that we have to enjoy and reflect him rightly through his son. He has provided a way of redemption for each and every single one of us that we might enjoy him fully and reflect him to a watching world, that we might enjoy him deeply and be his enriching presence to the lives of others. Paul will speak of this ultimate provision and restoration of the vessels of God's worship in Romans 8 this way. He did not spare anything. He didn't spare anything, including his own son, but gave him up for us all. How committed is God to his faithfulness, to his word, to his people, and to his promise? He didn't hold back anything. I mean, think of all the times and the places when you were doing good in your mind for someone else, but there's that part of you that wants to hold something back just in case... He didn't hold back anything in his faithfulness to his word and to you. He gave his only son to die in your place, the death that you and I deserve to die for our sin, for our misplaced worship. Not only did he provide what we need in the same way that he very practically provided for his people as they left Babylon and going back to Jerusalem, that's a picture of what he would ultimately do. He didn't just one time provide what they need to get there. He continued to provide all that they needed to be his people there. He continues to do the same for us. Paul said not only did he not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. That verse continues. How will he not also... With him, Jesus, graciously give us all things. He continues according to his faithfulness to provide for his people everything that we need. So now all of a sudden we can listen to Paul in Philippians chapter 2 and hear him say, God is working in you giving you the desire to obey Him and the power to do what pleases Him. Not only has God provided the redemption and deliverance for you in His Son, now by His Spirit, the Lord is continuing to provide for you all that you need to be who He's calling you to be, to want the things that bring you joy, to want the things that most glorify Him, to help you take the step today, tomorrow, and the next day towards the end to which He's committed. He's faithful. His faithfulness is actively working in you. And so you can find little pieces of joy even in places like the book of Lamentations where you can read that the steadfast love of the Lord, the faithful love of the Lord, it never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your mercy. Faithfulness. He's faithful. Faithful to himself, faithful to his word, faithful then to his people. His mercies, they never come to an end. One writer would say whenever God works in his grace, he, he takes those in captivity to sin, and frees them by Christ's spirit. He brings them back to his house And he provides for their every need. His promises are fulfilled. He is for all eternity, truly, both first and last. What would God have his people know? Not just then, but even now. When everything about life in a fallen world grows mundane and ordinary, and the everydayness seems to want to overwhelm us, and the picture of where we're going and how we're getting there seems so far-fetched and improbable in our minds that all the things around us all of a sudden feel more tantalizing and real and impossible and probable. What would God want his people to know? I think he would want his people to know and to help one another to be encouraged, to be of strong courage. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's promised. He knows how to get us there and he's faithful. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten what he said. He's faithful and his faithfulness is actively at work in you for your joy and his glory. I'm going to pray for us and, and then we're going to begin to respond to God's word together. We're going to do that by giving you just a couple of minutes to reflect on what you've heard to allow you to pray, to to deal with God, let him deal with you. And then for all of those who have tasted of the sweetness of God's continued faithfulness to his grace and and you through repentance have placed your hope and confidence upon his son for your salvation, we're gonna celebrate and remember his sacrifice by receiving communion together. And then we're gonna sing and we're gonna be sent out from here as his people here in this place. So let me pray for us and then we'll continue to respond. Father, we thank you for the needed reminder of your faithfulness. Our hearts grow so distracted and so sleepy. It's so easy to think you've forgotten. It's so easy to think that your promises and the picture of what you're committed to is for someone else. I know me, I know my heart, I know my sin. This must be for other people. God, thank you for the reminder of your faithfulness to your word, your faithfulness to your character, your faithfulness then to your people. We ask according to your word that you would do the miracle that only you can do by your spirit and you would stir our hearts. For some, bring new life to hearts that are dead to you. Awaken them to your glory in the person of your son. Lord, for the rest of us, stir our hearts this morning to find deeper satisfaction in you to see the charms of the world that we live in for what they really are, as hollow as they really are, and to find an increasing delight in all that you are for us and continue to be for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.